Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode number 33. I'm one of your hosts, Kip Clark, and joining me today for the very first time is a new co-host, Caroline Borders. Hello. So today, for our first episode together, I wanted to react to a video that has a very special place in my heart because of its influence in my life and actually beyond my life and the lives of other people I know. It's going to be around graduation time when we release this episode. And when I graduated from Wellesley High in 2012, I was very privileged to receive a very special commencement speech from a former teacher of mine, David McCullough who is and was an English teacher at Wellesley High. He's been teaching for 26 years, not always at Wellesley High. He taught in Hawaii beforehand, but he gave us a very interesting commencement speech, which I welcome all of you to check out. It's on YouTube. I will include that link with the episode so you can all go watch it, and I highly recommend it, of course. But right now, here's a clip from that commencement speech that he gave us. But Dave, you cry. Walt Whitman tells me I'm my own version of perfect. Epictetus tells me I have the spark of Zeus. And I don't disagree. So that makes 6.8 billion examples of perfection, 6.8 billion sparks of Zeus. You see, if everyone is special, then no one is. If everyone gets a trophy, trophies become meaningless. In our unspoken but not so subtle Darwinian competition with one another, which springs, I think, from our fear of our own insignificance, a subset of our dread of mortality, we have of late, we Americans, to our detriment, come to love accolades more than genuine achievement. We have come to see them as the point, and we're happy to compromise standards or ignore reality if we suspect that's the quickest way or only way to have something to put on the mantelpiece, something to pose with, crow about, something with which to leverage ourselves into a better spot on the social totem pole. No longer is it how you play the game, no longer is it even whether you win or lose, or learn, or grow, or enjoy yourself doing it. Now it's, so what does this get me? As a consequence, we cheapen worthy endeavors, and building a Guatemalan medical clinic becomes more about the application to Bowdoin than the well-being of Guatemalans. It's an epidemic, and in its way, not even dear old Wellesley High is immune, one of the best of the 37,000 nationwide Wellesley High School, where good is no longer good enough, where a B is the new C, and the mid-level curriculum is called advanced college placement. And I hope you caught me when I said one of the best. I said one of the best so we can feel better about ourselves, so we can bask in a little easy distinction, however vague and unverifiable, and count ourselves among the elite, whoever they might be, and enjoy a perceived leg up on the perceived competition. But the phrase defies logic. By definition, there can be only one best. You're it or you're not. So as you heard from that brief clip, part of the point that he tried to make in his speech, and I think did so quite well, is that we live in a day and age which I think embellished by the school system or the education system privileges achievement rather than the process of getting there and actually building up to achievement and learning and sort of growing. And maybe they sound like ideals and romantic notions of how we should live our lives, but I think he had a lot of important things to say. But I will also pause here because I don't want to talk too much. Caroline, what were some of your initial thoughts when you saw this video? Well, when I first watched this video, it spoke to me as a emulation of, I feel like, what the last 15, 20 years have been in terms of ideas about education and how one raises kids. And it's kind of called into question how we support our kids, how we funnel them towards a success and achievement. I agree. And how maybe that has become meaningless in some ways and how we've developed it. So when he's talking about how every child gets a trophy on the soccer team or just to have that 
trophy. For me, it maybe creates some sort of meaninglessness for the kid who actually did really well. But at the same time, I think there is a limit to how one valorizes a trophy. I mean, at the same time, it's just a trophy. And if a trophy symbolizes to a child, oh, I did really well, this is something I feel confident and if it helps a child develop in a positive way, then I don't really see much harm in it. Maybe as a child or a you know teenager gets older, they'd become a little more aware of like, oh, like, oh, I'm getting a trophy. Everyone's getting a trophy. This is pointless. But I think when the child is six years old, I don't know what harm is really being done, you know. And you're totally right. I think that's a very valid point. I also think that, at least in our discussion, differentiating between child and adolescence is important. But I agree with everything you're saying about children, and I think perhaps some of his criticism was more leveled at the parents of adolescents. Sure. One thing I would like to say in terms of expressing my bias or sort of putting it out on the table so our listeners all know, I was a student of Wellesley High, but also a student of Mr. McCullough's in my sophomore year of English class and I was very fond of him. I do think a lot of other students idealized him, and don't get me wrong, I think he was a tremendous teacher and one of my favorites, but I think in a very problematic way, kids would take what he said as sort of gospel. A lot of the points he tried to make, not only in this speech, but in many of the readings we read, for example, Bartleby the Scrivener, is that you should disagree with things sometimes. You should think for yourself and be contrary if it suits your independence, not simply for the sake of being contrary. He wanted us to think for ourselves, and so I was always a bit troubled when students sort of took what he said as just doctrine and accepted it blindly. I think he's a very clever man. I remember he always used to refer to his wife as the woman he married. And a lot of us laughed at that, but knowing Mr. McCullough, I think those words were very carefully chosen. I think it's because of certain expectations about attributing the title of wife to someone instead of an actual individual who chose that marriage, not simply someone who happened to be placed in that position. And also, the term my as being a little bit possessive. I think he was very aware of what he was doing. And he told us various stories in which he depicted very clear respect for this individual, obviously the person he married. So I don't know, I think he's a very articulate person. I think that a lot of that can get swept under the rug by people who aren't paying close attention, which getting back to the speech, a lot of news channels misappropriated what he was saying. They fixated on the you're not special part and didn't actually see what he was going for, what he was trying to impart to us, and apparently two or so million other people who ended up watching that video of that speech, I just don't think everyone gave him the right amount of thought. I don't think they gave him the time that he deserved in terms of the speech that he made. In one of the articles that Caroline and I read, again, which I will link to in The Atlantic, actually, he talks about how attitudes towards education have gradually shifted. He thinks that children have been guided and groomed for success to the point that education hinges upon achievement rather than actual learning. Exactly. And I, I think it's, as you were saying about how he maybe talks about his marriage as a choice rather than an action or something. I feel like he's trying to point out how not necessarily robotic our generation has become in terms of how they move towards achievement, but just how we've been groomed to such a state that instead of trying to really gain something or learn something through personal choice, it's just we're kind of set on this track towards success. And then once we get to that success, I don't think that our generation really knows what to do with it necessarily. I agree. I think that's very valid. One point that occurs to me when talking about learning and education, I think back to tests that I've had, countless tests in the 15 or so years that I've been in institutional education, after almost every test I've had, 
kids have turned to me or turned to their classmates and said, oh, how'd you do on the test? Or, you know, what went well? No one asks, what did you learn on the test? What are you going to remember about World War One or the Soviet yeah. Union? It's never about learning, at least in those cases. And I think that says something about how we treat learning. No one ever likes a class if they're doing badly in it. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that says a lot about grades and achievements yeah. rather than learning. And it's really sad. And but I think I we're think all guilty true. of it. I mean, absolutely. I, if I, I get am. a poor grade and for me, a poor grade is sometimes a B, you know, and he talks about that too, how a B has now become the next C. And mm -hmm. I feel like I missed something. I feel like I didn't learn as much or I didn't learn well enough. It's not so much, oh, am I learning or am I not learning? Am I exploring? Am I discovering? It's how well am I grasping this material? Right which could be irrelevant the next day, but it doesn't matter. I agree. I'd also like to ask you what you think about certain notions of competition that he brings up. He talks about a child going to Guatemala to help build a medical clinic. It's more about the application to Bowdoin, obviously symbolic of any college mm -hmm. that you're applying to to sort of get a leg up. What do you think about some of those points? Competitiveness has sort of become homogenous, where what is viewed as competitive is what every person is trying to achieve. In fact, I, I didn't speak to you about this before we started recording, but I read an article yesterday that came from a former admissions officer at Harvard who is no longer an admissions officer there. Okay. Did you read this? Or I did, did you not. See it? Okay, so he basically was talking about how every single applicant he would receive was pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. And so those that got in and those that didn't was fairly arbitrary. So I've this idea, like Harvard, one of the most competitive schools to get into in the country, the idea of competitiveness has just totally plateaued. Instead of students trying to focus on a uniqueness, people are manipulating how they are perceived or represented towards an achievement rather than the potential of learning something. And, and it's not to say that all these students who are applying to elite colleges, which I think many from Wellesley High did as well mm -hmm. when hearing this graduation speech. But each student who is applying to these elite schools knows what is competitive, knows what is attractive, good grades, good scores. Oh, but then I also went backpacking in Southeast Asia. Mm -hmm. How unique. And I think that idea of uniqueness, it needs to be rediscovered. I completely agree. I think uniqueness is an important term to look at because it does hinge upon relation and association to other people, being all on its own without any comparison can't really be unique because there's nothing to compare it to. Exactly. But I think that far too often people look for any differentiation as a form of uniqueness rather than something they legitimately want or want to do with themselves or their lives and saying, yeah, I happen to weave baskets and that makes me unique, as opposed to saying, I want to make myself unique. What are other people not trying? And I don't think that's really the best way to go about it because it shouldn't be the aim to be unique. It should be the aim to be yourself, ideally, and then find but that that's unique. But even that, I mean, and this was a point made in this article by this former Harvard's admissions officer, that telling some 17-year-old to be yourself is kind of ludicrous. They don't know who they are, not necessarily. I mean, they haven't fully developed. What a vague thing to say. I hear kind of you. Do you think that we live in a system that maybe doesn't allow for as many opportunities of self-discovery? I personally don't necessarily think that it's impossible for a 17-year-old to know who they are at that point. I think, especially in terms of this track to success mm -hmm. attitude that I think especially America has adopted, I think it's been glorified to a sense where being yourself is 
muddled. It doesn't really exist. There's no set of instructions or directions. And I feel like that's what our generation has kind of been taught. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, then you will achieve this. And so far that formula works out, but to an extent where students are so used to achieving and doing well that they get once they're out of college and they have their major and they've done extremely well in life and once they can't find anything but working at Starbucks or something like that then they're like what did I do wrong and they don't know how to function without that goal in mind that pursuit I agree I absolutely agree he notes at certain points in the speech or the commencement address climb a mountain to climb the mountain to you know behold the view enjoy the fresh air and embrace the challenge climb it so you can see the world not so the world can see you and I think I might be paraphrasing but the idea there is important he says don't go to paris to call yourself worldly go there because you want to go there and i think that far too often we live in sort of a checklist mindset of you know get these things done do you want to be married if not don't do it because it's expected of you you know do you want to go to college i don't think it, it needs to be the only way there were plenty of teachers i had who would occasionally mention that and say like mr mccullough said often to us if you didn't go to college and for four years went to a library every day and read a book or read something, you would learn a lot. And I think sort of the way we handle education is interesting in sort of the context of this. But I think you and I might later come back to education. It's a big topic and there's a lot to say. Another thing that he brings up, we live on a planet of 6 billion people. That's at the time that he gave that speech. It's now about 7.3 billion. And he talks about how absolutely numerous people exist on the planet. It's a very, very high number. How can you possibly differentiate yourself And I think it's an interesting question because there are, of course, that many more people. Do you think that limits our opportunity to be unique? I think it should expand it. I mean, if there's so many people on this, and I think he makes his point by saying we are not special because everyone is special. I think the more people that are on this earth, the more promise it holds, the more development it holds, the more people that are produced on earth, of course, that means potentially more suffering, more strife and more hardship but i also think it creates opportunity for new discovery by new generations the prolongation of the human race right so absolutely wouldn't that expand i don't know yeah i I don't think that it does cheapen us i think that people do still find unique things especially because even if there's someone with my height and other physical characteristics if he or she wasn't raised in the same town i was they have different experiences and i think that alone differentiates people and i don't think we always reflect on that in terms of experience and the experiences he urged us, and I think urges anyone listening to pursue, doing the things that you love. Do it because you want to do it. Do it because you find it fulfilling. And I think that the people that pursue those things do end up succeeding or finding success. I think it's about that exhilaration of doing something that just gives you joy. You're not doing it for money. You're not doing it for other gain. And of course, those people may end up getting a lot of money or other substantial consequences because they keep going. But I think in this, there's also a class issue because there's a privilege in being able to say, oh, I'm doing what I love. I'm doing. You're totally right. In addition to everyone being special in the same way and therefore no one is special, that totally applies to anyone from Wellesley High. It's a fairly Mm -hmm. upper echelon area. And I think all those students are pretty homogeneous in their opportunity 
They yes, have the opportunity to excel in school, probably get some sort of SAT prep, get good scores to go to these schools to have a future after high school and to pursue something that potentially makes them unique, like backpacking through Southeast sure. Asia or something like right, that. Right, which takes money, of or course. Or going to Guatemala, agree. yeah. It is a fair point. I think I was very aware of it throughout high school, perhaps less so in the sense of economics and more so just how driven people were to maintain certain statuses. Your parents went to an Ivy League school, how much pressure there was on you to go to an Ivy League school. And you know, I remember looking around for four years every day and seeing some form of stress from other people that cried after they got test grades back, reacted so strongly to the thought that some college admissions officer who's never met you receives a piece of paper or a packet of papers and is going to judge you in some way. It's a terrifying feeling, I agree, but I also think we let them wield that much power by saying that college is sort of the end-all, be-all. And obviously, I haven't lived all of my life yet. I'm no expert, but I'd like to think that wherever you go to college or whatever you do in your life, a lot of it is what you make of your experience. Certainly, some people are presented with more hardships than others, unfairly so, through no fault of their own. I don't deny that. But then there are people that, let's say, go to a top-tier school, which I think itself is a problematic idea. And then those who go to, let's say, a quote-unquote lower tier school. I think there's a lot of weird stigma around that. Not to mention that the idea of going to a top tier undergraduate institution, that being your alma mater, I think it's fairly societally constructed. It's importance anyway, because in your actual career, what really matters is your graduate degrees, your undergraduate degree, your bachelor's degree at this point. It doesn't matter is what I'm saying in the long run if you majored in art history in your undergraduate college or if you majored in business. It, it doesn't necessarily matter in the long run, which kind of begs the question, why is all this this pressure, this stress put on it? It just goes back to this track kids are put in and the pressure they think that inflicts. Mm -hmm. Another point that he actually makes, I don't know necessarily in the speech so much, but in the book that was later a product of all this sort of fiasco, which again, I can link to, so if people wanna check that book out, I personally read it and recommend it, but as I've admitted, I'm biased. I very much enjoyed him as a teacher, and I'm aware of that. But in the book, he talks about, as I think he did in the Boston Globe article, the idea that there used to be this adage or philosophy of just be home by dinner. Kids could go out and play, there wasn't this paranoia about the safety of children. Obviously, nowadays, we have plenty of lawsuits and legal restrictions on playgrounds, and I can understand it to a degree, but I also think one point that he attempts to make in the book that I'd be very curious to hear your input on is just the idea that, yeah, kids are going to fall. Kids are going to scrape their noses, their legs are going to break bones. They will take tests that they will fail at. They'll make mistakes. Romantically, they'll choose the wrong people for a bit. People make mistakes. It's, it's not fair to expect success immediately. But I think his conclusion to that is they will figure it out. We as parents, we as teachers, etc., need to give them that space and they will learn. People are adaptable, people are smart, and people are capable of learning. I know that was a very long sort of diatribe, but what do you think about sort of how we pursue safety now? We try to limit failure. How do you take that? It's funny you say that because during my sophomore year of high school, I had an English teacher named Mr. Angler, and we were either reading Catcher in the Rye or we were reading The Odyssey. Regardless, he's kind of this big burly guy. He'd call everyone by their last name, so I was Borders. My friend Claire was Blackwilder. I mean, it wasn't even a question. He was the crew coach, so I don't even remember the context for it, but one class, he was like, 
you are going to have a time in the next 10 to 15 years where you are going to fail. It is going to happen. It's inevitable and you will be okay. And I think he was like one of those teachers who would kind of elaborate on his personal life a little more than others. So I think it tied into his own life. But I remember that so well because I don't think it had ever really occurred to me before then. It's like I've always done well in school. I've always enjoyed school, you know, to whatever extent that means, possibly because I was 16 years old and I wasn't thinking about when I was going to be 25 or something like that. But the idea of failure had never really come up. And I think in a way, because I'm from a fairly upper echelon community as well, I think you're sheltered in a way. I mean, I was talking to my dad over spring break, all these these six-year-old kids had cell phones and there was this one girl who was trying to go swimming and her parents wouldn't let her go in past her knees and I think she was at least 12 or 13 years old. Mm. I mean this notion of you're not just gonna say bye to your kid on a Saturday morning they're gonna go play in the woods that's not even allowed anymore. I think everything is so constructed in a way. I'm not a parent so I wouldn't know like if you're just trying to save your child from not being hurt, you know, whatever. But I think it's a little crazy. (laughs) I agree to a point. I can see the desire to protect a person or a thing that you love. I totally understand that. But I do think it's ironic in a sense, because let's say your child never puts a hand on a hot stove, doesn't know what it's like to be burned, and they go through life 30, 40 years without ever feeling that. The first time they're on their own cooking pasta or whatever, and they burn their hand, I'm sure they'd be terrified because they'd never felt that. Yeah, it's so I'm not saying put your child's hand on that stove, but allow children to explore things. They will learn what hurts, what to avoid. I think we forget what childhood was like. There's only a certain extent that you can protect your children. I agree. You know, because otherwise, if you see your child, a friend, a family member in a toxic relationship or just simply a relationship that you don't approve of. They need to learn that for themselves. I agree. You can do as many things as you need to do as a friend, maybe give them your opinion, give them advice, whatever. It's their decision. They got to make that mistake or that failure, whatever, by themselves. I agree. And I think another point that Mr. McCullough made, perhaps the last point that we'll make in this episode is the degree to which parents want to pursue vicarious lives through their children. On one hand, I totally get it. Life is exciting. It's fascinating. You can experience so many things. Why wouldn't you want a second go around? But at the same time, it isn't your life. It's very clearly a separate entity. It's something you created, but it is a different person. I think that parents remember their mistakes, people they didn't ask out, the teams they didn't try out for, the glory they didn't feel they got to live through, and they pursue it, which is a point he really embellishes in the book that I found interesting and accurate. And what do you think about how parents sort of pursue that that route of relationship with their children? Or perhaps have you seen that in your life? Well, I don't think she's going to listen to this. So I, I have a friend from high school, and her mother seems, and seemed at the time, just positively obsessed with her, posting pictures of her on Facebook all the time and kind of glorifying her as this is my daughter and following her to college. And I don't know their relationship, but it strikes me as a little overbearing Mm -hmm. and potentially harmful to that person as an individual. And of course, we're talking about all these people and all these graduates as individuals, which I think is somewhat 
problematic. I mean, everyone is an individual, but I don't necessarily think the key to success is being completely competitive and being completely individual. I agree. I, we live and, in a society of other people. Exactly. So that relationship has always struck me as kind of bizarre, perhaps maybe because my parents are fairly hands off with what I do. Mm-hmm. I think that's an extreme degree, whereas my mom seems hyper focused on my future and how I'm doing it and where it will go and that I'm only a junior in college, you know? Right. So it's to varying degrees, but I think it's totally invalid. I absolutely agree. I think moderation is key. One of the last things I will say, I will sort of tell all of you in case you did not check that video, how Mr. McCullough concluded the speech to us. He said, as you commence then and before you scatter to the winds, I urge you to do whatever you do for no reason other than you love it and believe in its importance. Don't bother with work you don't believe in any more than you would a spouse you're not crazy about, lest you find yourself on the wrong side of a Baltimore Orioles comparison. Resist the easy comforts of complacency, the specious glitter of materialism, the narcotic paralysis of self-satisfaction. Be worthy of your advantages. And read. Read all the time. Read as a matter of principle, as a matter of self-respect. Read as a nourishing staple of life. Develop and protect a moral sensibility and demonstrate the character to apply it. Dream big. Work hard. Think for yourself. Love everything you love, everyone you love, with all your might. And do so, please, with a sense of urgency, for every tick of the clock subtracts from fewer and fewer, and as surely as there are commencements, there are cessations, and you'll be in no condition to enjoy the ceremony attendant to that eventuality, no matter how delightful the afternoon. So before we conclude this episode, Caroline, are there any questions or things you'd like our listeners to think about after hearing this episode? I guess sort of in response to Mr. McCullough's final words this speech, while yes, life is short, just think about maybe how life is also long. I think that's very well said. One thing I would urge people to consider or sort of think about, one, the role of moderation, to what extent we pursue things on maybe too extreme a level or maybe not passionately enough, and also in terms of doing what you love. Why is it something you love? Is it something you learn from other people? Is it something that you generally found on your own? Thinking about where we find those things, and I don't think there's a wrong or right answer, but... And you don't have to do it immediately. Agreed. Or figure it out immediately. So to anyone who would like to respond, and we would, of course, love your feedback as always, our Twitter is Stride and Saunter. You can reach us on Facebook, Stride and Saunter. Our email account is strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And of course, we encourage you to check out our website, strideandsaunter.com. And as always, we thank you all for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off. And this is Caroline Borders. We'll see you next time.